0: Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. If you would grab your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you go to church somewhere and they don't grab their Bible, you in the wrong church. Amen. Okay, I got some amens. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Let it let it hurt whoever's feelings. Amen. We choose to believe the Bible here at Riverside because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events that took place in fulfilled a prophecy. It's divine, not human in origin. We here at Riverside believe in sola scriptura. Say it with me: sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means the Bible and the Bible alone. It's Latin. And it means the Bible. You're not speaking in. Terms. When you say sola scriptura, you're saying Latin phrases. And the reason we use Latin phrases is because Latin does not change. It's a dead language. So it's in concrete. That's what it means and that's what it says. Think about in the last 50 years how our language has evolved. Different words mean different things now than they did 50 years ago. But sola scriptura means the Bible and the Bible alone. We believe that the Bible caused the fouls. It caused the balls. It caused the strikes. It caused us to live our life according to what it says. We also believe in sola Fide. Say it with me. Sola fide. Man, that was weak. Let's try it again. Sola fide. Very good. Faith and faith alone is what that phrase means. That means we have confidence and trust in something. Did you know you have faith and confidence in the person who made the pew that you're sitting in right now? Otherwise, you would not be sitting in that pew. You have faith and confidence that the person beside you is not going to stab you. Otherwise, you would not be sitting here. Don't look at them. makes them nervous. But we have we have faith and confidence in something. And not really a something, but a something one. And that's sola Christa. Say it with me. Sola Christas. It's a Latin phrase that means Christ in Christ alone. When you say it, you got to smile. Christ in Christ alone. We have faith in Christ. Jesus. Just Jesus. Just give me Jesus, preacher. Don't add anything else. Don't let it be my tithing record. Don't let it be my church attendance. Let it be Christ in Christ alone. And whenever we believe in Christ, he bestows upon us another Latin phrase. And this is one of my favorites sola gracia. Let's say it together. Sola gracia. You got to roll the R's. Sola gracia. It means grace and grace alone. We are simply saved by grace. We're only saved by grace. The only reason anybody gets to go to heaven is because of grace. The fact is that we all deserve hell. Not just hell, but hell, hell. You know the place that nobody wants to go. The real bad part of hell. Well, it's all bad. But I want to make sure you understand that we only go to heaven because of grace and grace alone. And all that culminates on top with a big bow on top. See, we did the five solas. And in fact, coming up in the spring, we'll be doing a revival on the five solas. We'll have five different preachers and they'll come and they'll preach about each and every one of them and you'll be invited as well. But this last one is sola deo gloria. Let's say it together. Sola deo gloria. It's a Latin phrase that means for God's glory and his glory alone. The preaching is for God's glory. The church attendance is for God's glory. The high fives and bumping your neighbor is for God's glory. The singing is for God's glory. Your job, wherever you go to work, 9 to 5 or 4 to 3, whatever, however you work, is for God's glory. Raising your children is for God's glory. Going to get a paycheck is for God's glory. Your whole life is for God's glory and his glory alone. If you would, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. As we we go and we just walk briefly here and we get to unpack. Here in 1 Samuel 25 tonight, one of the saddest lines of the whole book of uh, 1 Samuel. This is where we actually read the name of the man who bore the book. What does that mean, preacher? The guy's name is Samuel. He wrote the book of 1 Samuel. However, you see here he's recorded that he dies. And you might say, well, how How in the world does it record that he dies if he's dead? How is he writing it? Well, we have looked through history and scholars have investigated this claim and it's the the prophet Gad and the prophet Nathan who continues to write the book of 1 Samuel. So we see in Samuel chapter number one, chapter number 25 verse number 1. Follow along with me in your Bible. If you go hear a sermon somewhere and they don't have the Bible open like I said that's a bad sermon. These are my notes. You have my notes right in front of me. In fact you know what I preach next week because we'll go after 25 into 26. And guess what we'll do after 26? 27. I ain't good with mass but I know what comes next amen but we will be you'll know what I'm preaching next every week and you can read ahead and this will help with your personal Bible study this is systematically it will help you to grow and nurture your faith but here in first Samuel chapter 25 verse 1 now Samuel died We see here that that the, the man Samuel, he was known as a prophet to the nations. We know that he's a man after God's own heart. We can remember back in the beginning of the whole book, whatever Samuel was a child and he's being spoken to from the Holy of Holies, God called Samuel into the ministry. And Samuel replied, here I am. He cries out to God, here I am, speak to me, for your servant is here, back in Samuel chapter number 2. Now we see how it ends. It doesn't end with ticker tape parades. There are no applause. There are no parties. There is no uh, ceremonies. Yes, they do get together and mourn. But that's how the man of God is to die, with a whimper and the footnote of history. It's not about us. The book may be named Samuel, but it's not about Samuel. Your book is not about you. It's not about Patrick or Travis. It's not about Jamal or Keith. It's not about Ed or Brent. It's about God and God alone. Oh, no, amens. I called out names. Come on. Y'all getting weak. Don't bring that weak sauce up in here. We see here that Samuel died. Then again, it's not really about Samuel. You'll see that as we read through history and Numbers chapter 20, verse 29 for those taking notes. And all the congregation saw that Aaron had perished. And all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. Aaron was the first high priest, but Aaron still died. And Deuteronomy 34 verse 8. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and the mourning for Moses were ended. Mourning is a part of life. We try to avoid it. Pain and loss is just a part of life. Don't believe Lies that come from the pulpit come to Jesus and you'll never have any troubles. Don't believe the lies that anyone tells you. Come to Jesus and you'll never have any struggles whatsoever. For even if you're on drugs, you still have troubles because you come down off the drug. Ecstasy only lasts for a little while. And then you're in more trouble than you were before you took the medicine. Trials and tribulation will come your way. Jesus even tells us in this life you will have trouble and trials. But he says, rest assured, don't worry because I've overcome them all. Trials and mourning and loss will come your way. Don't come to Jesus and expect an easy ride and the boat never to be shook. Don't come to Jesus and expect sometimes the boat not to sink. But that's okay because he walks on water. Amen. Somebody, come on preacher. I know, I know, I know. Mourning is a part of life. We see here that there were no famous last words for Samuel. We don't record anything he says. We don't know what he says. But then again, it don't really matter what he says. It only shows how he lived he lived a well life, a, a life with meaning. He did not waste his life. What are some examples of what Samuel did? He establishes places for prophets to come and develop and their faith to grow as they worship God. Later on, Elijah will pick up the mantle here and establish more schools of the prophets in the, in the tribes of Israel. He had no famous last words. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, his first words were, Speak for your servant hears. Whenever godly men die, it shows the faithfulness of God. For God was faithful to them to the end. We always say, well, they were faithful to God. Actually, I want to explain it like this. Uh, Many of you know somebody with a baby or you've held a baby before. And and, and we've we've heard this analogy before, but I'm just going to reiterate it. Whenever you're holding an infant in your arms, that baby with their small thinking will grab with their little grubby hands onto a shirt or a blouse and hold on. And that baby may think, I'm holding on to them because I don't want them to drop me. In all actuality, it's the strong arms of the parent or the aunt or the uncle holding that child. Amen. It's God who holds on to us. It ain't us holding on to God. Because our grip will slip every time. Somebody say amen. We know all about that. God is faithful even if we ain't. Even if we're weak and feeble, God is strong to hold us even in the midst of a storm. Amen. Amen. Just as an infant hangs in the arms of his mother, our God holds on to us. Let that encourage somebody. Who's wondering? Is this? Uh, just things ain't working out. This is hard. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm confused. And I'm worried. The boat is, is the boat is taking on water. I feel like I'm going down the drain. I'm in free fall. I'm trying to hold on to anything. Rest in the arms of grace. Let me say this to you: If you're up at night and you're worried about what tomorrow holds, because anxiety is. Climbing up on the bed with his bony hands and wrapping them around your throat, choking you out? I I want to tell you this. The Bible says that God does not sleep or slumber. Our God does not sleep or slumber. So why do you need to stay awake? Both of y'all don't need to stay awake. Let him handle it. Give it to God and go on to sleep. Trust in Him. The Bible says He gives His beloved rest. This should resonate with everybody, even the preacher. And I am not exempt from anxiety. I'm not exempt from worry, for my God is in control. Why do I worry? I'm not even preaching to you. I'm talking to me. Y'all just here. And I'm talking out loud. Praise be to God. My God is on the throne. Even when I don't know what's going on. He do. He do. He know what's up. He's, He's in control. It's all under His hand. He's in control. He's God. Well, that's just the intro. Let's get past that. (laughs) We see where Samuel died. Down at Samuel, the man of God is gone. What's going to happen? Are we in trouble? What what we're going to do? Is God still still favorable? Is God still merciful? God still gracious? Well, there's a whole lot of Bible after this, and that proves to me that He is still merciful. He's still gracious, and He's still kind. He still speaks to His people. Thanks be to God that they don't stop when the man dies. That if I were to lay down in the dust today, that I would die, but God will rise up even from among our congregation. Someone to come to the pulpit and proclaim that He's faithful. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. And he forgives sinners. Amen somebody. So we see here that Samuel has now died. And all of Israel assembled and mourned for him. Did you know it's okay to mourn? Some people will tell you got to get over it. It don't tell you how long you can mourn. It doesn't tell you you're only allowed to mourn this long. Some people mourn for years and years. Some people are mourning right now and you're still here, you're mourning. You're mourning somebody you loved and they're gone and you just have not gotten over it. I understand. The Bible talks about it explicitly. There are people who mourn. It talks about flesh and bone. It talks about reality. These are not fairy tales. When you read the Bible, you see people's flaws and all. The people mourn that Samuel is gone. It's kind of a good thing that they mourn they should not have celebrated that he was gone because if they celebrated they were glad he was gone then that means they were in opposition to his life and what he lived and his testimony but they mourned that he's gone and they buried him in his house at Ramah that's where he lived and that's where his bones were laid and some people might think and consider that when you die there's nothing, it's blackness that's it However, the Bible says this in Second Corinthians chapter 5, six through 10. So we are always of good courage. No, no. we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due that we have done in the body, whether good or evil. The text that I just shared with you tells us to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Amen. That we lay down this weary body. No more aches and pains. No more pulled muscles. No more headaches. No more afflictions. We lay them down. I, I, I traveled some and I don't really like to travel. I, I was an evangelist for years and I, I just didn't like to travel because it was rough on this whole body. But I flew one time. And I noticed whenever we got to the, the terminal, whenever we were going to the gate, there are people who will make sure that you don't carry certain things past the gate. They'll say, sir, you'll have to leave that chemical here. You'll have to leave that liquid here. You can't go past the gate here because of regulations. So they will lay down shampoo, mousse, all kinds. You can only have so much that you could bring on the other side of that gate when you were flying. The same thing is whenever you pass into eternity. When you get to the to the, that moment where you close your eyes, you lay down these affirmities. You can't go past that. You, you have to leave that here. Those mangled body parts, those those confused thoughts, those broken souls, you leave that here and you pass on into glory. Well, there are no more tombstones and there are no more tears. Amen. Somebody, that should excite somebody that this ain't home and this ain't all there is. That we look for a better place, a, a place of promise, a place, a place of mercy, that this ain't it. I understand why some of you are gloomy because this is as close to heaven as you'll ever get because you're not regenerated. You're not saved by the blood of Jesus because this is all you get. But for us who are just pilgrims passing through. Immigrants here. That we're not going to stay here. We hold on loosely to the things that God gives us because this ain't home. We're on our way to a celestial city. A higher calling. A place where Jesus is. See some of y'all are okay we're going to heaven where there's a 70 degrees 70 degrees and there's a slight breeze. You eat cotton candy and corn dogs and all your favorite food don't get fat. All your friends are there and you're fine to be there. There's a casino you think. There's strip joints and ABC stores. All that is in heaven. is what you Think and you'll be fine with going there, but as long as there ain't no Jesus, it's not even heaven without Jesus, it's only heaven because Jesus is there for the true believer, the true follower, the one who has faith in Christ. We want to go to heaven, yes, yes, we won't never cry there, we won't have any tears, no more mourning, but it's heaven because. Jesus is there. Amen. Samuel has now passed and he's received his rewards. He stood before holy God and he heard those phrases that we should all aspire to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I long for that day and I do hope you do too. Amen. He, he don't have any great obituary. There's nothing written up into the papers. There's no black and white picture. There's nothing telling his accomplishments. He has no great monument. Because even though his name is on the book, like I said, it's not really about him. It's not about Samuel. It looks past Samuel. On into the New Testament. Whenever we read about the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever they talk about Jesus coming to redeem sinners like you and me. This book is not about David. It's not about Goliath and fighting giants and living your best life now. This book is about Jesus and what he's done to save people like me. As we continue, when David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran, there was a man in Maimon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had three thousand sheep and three thousand goats, and he was shearing sheep in Carmel. Now the man of the the, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly be- behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, we're introduced to a very rich man already. We can see from Luke 17, 7 through 10 that it's going to be hard for this man to, to, be, uh, to be considered even a Christian because he was very wealthy. The, the tendency of the, for humanity it's to put our trust in what we possess, believing that our worth is found in the objects and the things that we own. And many times the things that we own and we possess actually possess us. We put our faith in the things that we have our hands on. Because we're tangible. We're fallen. We don't need faith when we got good credit. Amen. Somebody. I don't know how many times I ran my card and prayed. Oh, Lord, come on. Let it let pass. I want these tacos. You know, I don't know about you. Your credit won't get it. Your money's strange. And your change is strange. Strange, you know, but we see here that we see here that this rich man has three thousand goats. In the biblical times, that having livestock is considered someone uh, would, a lot of livestock was considered someone very wealthy, and he had to have very many slaves to handle such a, a large number of livestock. He, he was a he was in the a, a wilderness area, and but he was west of Mount Sinai. And if you've been here on Sundays and Wednesdays, you know we've talked about Mount Sinai. If you've not heard that, go listen to our podcast. But this rich man, we're introduced to Abigail and Nabal. And I had to go ahead and explain a little bit about these two. Nabal's very name means flat, dull, or no color, or fool. He was a very plain man. He, the reason he was so wealthy, some people have speculated, it's probably because of Abigail, because she was full of wisdom and the way she had discretion. However, since he was a Canaanite, and Cable, he was actually one who was a beneficiary of a, 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 a large fortune. Because in the Old Testament, there was a man named Caleb. And if you read your Bible, you'll know that God actually had him get a lot of land that was close to 10 miles from this point where he's living. So he inherited a lot of land. Now, he was actually considered a spoiled brat, most likely, for his parents named him fool. Either his parents were clowns, or maybe that was his nickname. That he was someone who bore a nickname. He's someone who earned his name. Maybe you might know somebody like Buki Indium and Junebug. Or maybe somebody on the streets that you know. Somebody around the way that you know that they earned their name. Well, Nabal has certainly earned his name. He's very coarse. He was very wicked. He was very a uh, very uh, wicked type individual. Now he came from a family called the Calebites. And Caleb, Caleb means dog. He comes from a family of dogs. Now, maybe you might understand this phrase where it's a dog-eat-dog world, and that's probably where it came from. For this man was very rich, and he had great abundance, but he didn't want to share. He was actually jealous of other people who had great abundances. He was actually angry if you were actually prospering around him. This was the characteristics of Nabal. However, we see Abigail Abigail being his wife. This was probably an arranged marriage because I don't see her wanting to go after a guy like this. She wasn't wasn't enticed by his money. She was not enticed by his character, obviously, because in this text, this is actually one of my favorite stories where Abigail will basically save Nabal's life because of a a wrathful David. But as we examine here, we will actually see where his name is actually used in Psalms 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are And do abominable deeds. There is none who do good. However, Abigail's name means one who causes joy. Abigail was understanding and a beautiful person. Actually, in the text here, it actually says she was discerning and beautiful in verse number 3. But that doesn't necessarily mean her outward appearance. That could be also her character, the way she carried herself. We actually see that Nabal's description wasn't about his looks here in this verse so Abigail was probably, maybe a drop dead gorgeous woman. However, her discernment and her wisdom put her in a class way above Nabal. If you would say Nabal married up, he actually did. As we see in this text here, that Nabal was a fool. He was very coarse, badly behaved in verse number 3. And he was a Calebite. That was put there so you could understand what kind of family he comes from. That they have more money than they have class. More money than they have integrity. More money than they have conscience. So we see in verse number 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Now, you might need to understand a little a little background that whenever there was a sheep shearing, it's basically a big old party. Because in this time, they were nomadic, and if they actually settled down, they would be a ranch. And you had to shear all these sheep. And when you did, you would bring all your sheep and your livestock to a certain place in the wilderness, and you would shear all the sheep. Uh, to help us understand what that means, it's basically payday. Have you ever had payday and you're on your way home? Hey, I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to go get me a blizzard or you get you something. but you just, it's just payday. Well, this is the equivalent of payday. Whenever he would gather all his servants and they would come together for a sheep shearing. They would slaughter the animals and have a huge feast. They would shear the sheep and actually have trades and sell the fleeces to make money. Using livestock as currency. This was the epitome of Payday. However, you must understand, with 3,000 sheep in a territory, there are also raiders, there are also thieves, there are also war bands, there are also pirates who will poach the flock. And how do you suppose, suppose that Nabal kept his flock safe? Well, I'm glad you said David. David and his merry men were about 600 in number. And they made sure that the the, the flocks of Nabal were safe. They were like a wall unto them. They protected them and watched over them. They wanted nothing out of it. They, wanted, they had nothing into it, but there were security. Now, at this point, you will say, well, why does David even take it upon himself to ride into town and ask for anything? Well, this was common for anybody who was much as industrious as Nabal to be someone who had so much livestock and had so much invested in his animals to pay those who looked over his livestock, who kept them safe, to cause them not to lose anything. So David was not assuming anything. He was coming to get what was rightfully his. We see, so David sent ten ten young men in verse number five. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. You'll notice in verse number five that he sent ten young men. Now, he was expecting a bountiful gift because what David did, his men would just watch over the shepherds in the air, watch over the flock. They were putting their time and effort using their talents and their treasure there to watch over them. And David figures, hey, well, I figured that the man is so bountiful and rich that he will be willing and gracious and kind because God has given him so much. To spread the wealth and help us. There are 600 men in his platoon, basically. 600 men that are under the watch of David. So David would love to see what his benefits and his investments are now having a return. So we see that he sent 10 young men. Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him by name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house. Notice how he greets them. He greets them kindness and peace to you and your household and peace to all that you have. In verse 7, I hear that you have shears, and now your shepherds have been with us and we did not them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. The fact that none of David's men took it upon themselves to snatch one of these lambs to take anything from any of these shepherds that in itself is a miracle. Because you remember as we studied that the type of men that came under David's leadership, that they were some who were vagabonds and some who were highway robbers. And now they're there with David. And David, with his righteous leadership, had kept them as an example on how to deal with those around them. So they didn't bother them, they protected them. So we see in verse number 8. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in verse 9. In the name of David. And then they waited. In verse nine, it seems like they paused. Maybe they walked into the party and the festivities, and they brought they brought forth the proclamation from David and gave it to Nabal. And now everybody turns their head to the foolish Nabal, and they're going to see what Nabal says. And I want to tell you, he's going to earn his namesake here. He speaks in such a way. And Nabal answered in verse ten to David's servant, "Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse?" There are many servants these days who are breaking away from the master. Shall I take my bread and my water and meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back to told him all of this. At the beginning of the text, we saw where we mourned Samuel. But I want to back up probably a chapter before If you were here last week, you saw the conversation between David and the king Saul. David was being hunted like a dog by Saul. And David was not at fault. He was not an enemy of the state. In fact, it was Saul who was being wicked. But David showed mercy to Saul. And he bowed his face down to the ground and cried out to Saul. Asking Saul, why do you hunt a dog like me? Am I nothing more than a flea? You bring 3,000 men against me and I have done you no harm. There are people who are lying to you, Saul, saying that I'm coming after you. And he humbles himself before the king. Samuel dies and now David's about to flip his lid. I don't know what caused David to all of a sudden get insulted. You know who's not insulted in this chapter? Samuel. Because he's dead. You can't can't insult a dead man. Let that analogy fall on you. If you are dead in your trespasses and sins, if you are dead to sin and you don't live in sin anymore, you can't be insulted. You can't be angry. Because you serve God and you're alive in Christ. I do hope somebody understands and grasps that. He who has an ear, let him hear. But we see here David. He hears what Nabal says. That fool says this to me. Does he know who I am? you, you know who I am? Do you, you better take the base out of your foot. You rip. I better back up, baby. I'm going to lay hands on you, not in a spiritual way. You're going to get these hands. David says... When he hears what they say to his young men, David in verse 13 said to his men, Every man strap on his sword, and every man, of, every man of them strapped on his sword, and David strapped on his sword. About 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained at the baggage. David has been offended. David has been insulted. David has been... He's been put down. He don't you understand? Just in the previous chapter, he was humble, and then in the next chapter, he's ready to go to arms. How does that happen? Oh, we know how that happens. Well, we know how that. We come to church and we're like, praise Jesus, glory to God. This is good. Then we get in the parking lot. Somebody scuffs our shoes. You ready to put them on the ground? You get that text after Bible study, after you served Jesus and you read your daily bread and you're all spiritual and somebody calls you and says something and it it just messes up your hair. It makes your beard curly. It makes you mad. You feel goosebumps. You feel you about had it up to here. And just a moment ago, you were spiritual. you all in the spirit and loving Jesus. Now you all in the flesh. What hope is there for people like us? What hope is there for people like me? I'm glad as I read this that it ain't all fairy tales. Because if it was written, if it were not true, you would read this. And David, after he received that insult, would say, oh, okay, that's cool. we just go to Walmart. Man, don't worry about it. Don't, don't worry about it. But no, we see the humanity in David. We see him getting angry. And he see him telling his boys to mount up, we're about to go get ours. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. Amen. I get it. Maybe that's why the Psalms resonate with me. When David cries out, why are you cast down on my soul? Why is your heart broken within you? Trust in the Lord. Maybe that's why it resonates with me because David was flesh and bone and it helps somebody like me because I'm still flesh and bone. Maybe that's why Paul, whenever he writes Romans chapter 7, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. What hope is there for me? Why I I, I, I struggle in the flesh? I'm angry. I get mad. I have good days and bad days. What hope is there for me? And then he answers his own question. He says, Jesus Christ. As we read the text, we read our Bible, we see hero after hero rise up and they turn out not to be heroes. We see warts and all, but there's one that's distinguished above them all. One who does not slip, one who does not fall, one who does not say a slight of a word, one who does not look at anybody sideways or get angry and cause himself to sin. There's only one in the whole category all by himself, and that's Jesus. So we see here and we learn here that David is not the hero of this book. It's Jesus. So David straps on his belt, he straps on around his belt his sword. He, he goes and he's ready to bring down fire on Nabal. Now, I want you to understand that David, is, he's a redhead. He's hot-tempered. That's just, that's just how they do, Will. That's how they do. And, and Randy, that's what, that's what they do. Just hot-tempered. They're ready to go. They're popping off. And that's how... They, the Bible says that he was ruddy and red-haired and he was fair. So that's in his blood. It was natural how he was. So he's naturally carnal. He's naturally And here he's been set off. In the New Testament, we read of two brothers called the son of Zebedee. They're also called the sons of thunder. That means they were bold and brash and loud. Y'all yeah, don't know nobody like that. But they get they're loud and they will call down thunder. And at one point, they actually go to a, 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 a town and they're preaching to the people and, and they, 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 they say Jesus can't come in here because he's on his way to Jerusalem. We want him to stay here. Just keep on rolling. Kick rocks. And they turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, should we call fire down from heaven to consume and level the t- Town. and jesus corrects them there will always be sons of zebedee in every generation it just so happens that david is a son of zebedee it's just a nickname It means a son of noise a son of thunder he's loud and brash and he's ready to go i don't know if that describes you that you pop off in a moment something just sets you off good news welcome to the family Welcome to the family. There are people here that are broken. There are people here that are sinners. People who are addicts. There's people who are closet addicts. There's people here who go through depression, heartbreak. There's people here who are mourning. Welcome to the family. We're not the heroes. We're broken. And there's only one who's not. There's only one who was dead and now is alive. There's one who reigns forever and he's the one we lift up. He's the one we exalt. We're not here to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and think about how we can better ourselves. We're here to lift up with our hands the name of Jesus and aspire to live for him and exalt him and lift him up above all names, even our own. David's not thinking about God here at this point. He's thinking about getting his. He's thinking about getting his name cleared. He's thinking about all the disrespect that he's been shown. He's thinking about the disrespect he's getting on his name and now he's going to make sure everybody's clear and understands. But in verse 14 one of the young men told Abigail, Nab- Nabal's wife, Behold, David has sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at him. Yet the men were very good to us, is what this servant says, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when, they were to- when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. And they were a wall to us both day and night. And while we were with them, they were keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Everybody knew that Nabal was a worthless man. Everybody considered and knew what kind of man Nabal was. So they go to Abigail. The Bible talks about a virtuous woman. talks about it. and it actually talks about it in Proverbs thirty one. A virtuous woman who could find her that a blessing upon Nabal was not just his wealth, but his wife Abigail. Many times our blessings are not found in our pockets. It could be who our friends are. It could be uh, it could be the influences we have. It could be what church we go to. It's definitely a blessing. And behind who you marry, it should be what church you go to. Should be most important. Who your pastor is? Who prays for you? Do the people around you kick dirt on you when you're down and try to bury you? Or do they try to pray you back to life? That's the question. Do your friends pull you away from Jesus or push you closer to Jesus? That's a real friend. Abigail is a blessing from God to Nabal. And Nabal don't even see it. Nabal don't even consider it. He wants to count the bottom dollar. He wants to get drunk and live off the fat of his flock. But he don't even consider Abigail a blessing from God. So he probably used her as a side piece or an item or something that he owned. David tells his boys to strap on the sword. They're getting ready to roll into town. This servant gets to Abigail. And verse 18, And Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seeds. We see of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. You might say, that's a lot of stuff, or you might consider it not much. It was a great insult to David. And if she goes overkill, even better. And if you consider not enough, I understand. Truly, it's not enough for this kind of insult. But she's going to try to do restitution. And she's going to try to use wisdom. In verse 19, And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of the mountain. behold, David and his men came came down toward her. And she met him. In verse 21, and David said, surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. So God do so to the enemies of David more so if by morning I leave so much one male alive who belonged to him. You notice here David is saying, I'm going to help God. God needs a little bit of help. God needs help. He needs me to pick up the sword and fight his battles for him. I want you to understand what David's saying here. He's so mad that he's in the heat of the moment. It's a good thing there's a good ride to get to where Nabal is because David probably would have killed Nabal where he stood whenever he was rejected the first time. But that's the providence of God. We must understand in this story, this story is not really about Abigail, it's not about David, it's not about Nabal. It's really about God and His mercy and His grace kept a distance between David and Nabal. There's been times where you had wanted to sin, but God kept you from sinning. I don't think you caught what I said. I know some of y'all getting sleepy as we get to 730. That's the threshold. Some of y'all get a little wobbly. Pinch the person beside you if you hear them snoring. But, But we'll get there. We only got 30 more minutes. But I want to tell you that God will not leave you to your sin. He will not allow you to sin. You said, okay, preacher, last time you said he'll turn us over. You said, yeah, I did say that, but we'll get there. We're not as bad as we could be only because of God. Amen. You didn't hear me. We're not as bad as we could be because of God. Amen. If he took his hands off us where would we be? We talk about Hitler and how wicked he was and Stalin and Karl Marx and we talk about how wicked they are. We talk about the Ying dynasty and we talk about history. We talk about the atrocities of the communist regime, the Bolsheviks. We talk about all those in Russia and how atheism has killed millions upon millions of people because of unadulterated evil. And we think they're the exceptions, but they're not. They're not exceptions. We're all just as evil as Hitler. And if God were to take his hands off us, we would make Hitler like a schoolboy. We look at Charles Manson and Jeffrey Dahmer, serial killers. We look at them and say, they're wicked. They're bad. If God were to just take His hand off of you, you would rock this world and burn it down. But He restrains you in His grace. Even if you're not even His tonight, He still restrains you. Because you're not as wicked as you could be. And it's only because of the grace of God. The truth is, you would have already killed you if you could. And you would have. But His hand is on you. And He keeps you. And He holds you. Amen. Like I said, not a sparrow falls from the sky without his permission. He holds the keys of death held in the grave in his hand. He opens the door to the afterlife. He decides who lives and who dies. He is God and he reigns. And you're here today because he sees fit that you're here. And he's God. What you mean that God he controls everything? Absolutely. There is not one molecule, one proton, one neutron in all of creation that he does not control and reign over. If there is one maverick molecule in all the earth, then he is not God. He reigns over it all. And in this story, the story of God holding David to a point where he can get Abigail in front of him to calm him down with kind words and to motion his heart back towards godliness because he is shooting off at the hip. Has that ever happened to you? In the moment of the rage, you get caught up. And if it were not for God, who knows what would have went down. Well, what would have took place if God had not restrained you and kept you? Here we see. So God do so that the enemies of David even so by morning, if I leave so much one male of all who belonged to him alive. In verse twenty two, there was somebody else who acted like this in the previous chapters. It was Saul. Remember, Saul rode into a priest's town where the priests lived. They didn't have swords. There was no armor. They rode into town and killed all the priests, 85 priests unarmed and killed their wives and their children. David is almost emulating what the world looks like. We would almost what the world looks like if we take our eyes off of God and put our eyes on our pride when it gets bruised. Like a delicate little peach or an apple that gets a bruise on it when it gets a bump. That's the way our egos and our hearts are whenever somebody rubs us the wrong way, cuts us off in traffic, says something to us. We're offended. We're angry. And we're ready to go to blows. Do you realize who I am? You better recognize who you're talking to. What if Jesus had the same mentality? Here he is the Prince of peace, the God of glory who stepped down at the horizon of, uh, out of the horizons of heaven. He came to earth. God in all his majesty became a man. They spat on him, mocked him, dared him to move. They insulted him. They use more than hurtful words. Today in our society, if you use words and it hurts our feelings, that's the ultimate sin. But they beat Jesus. Drug him through the street. Placed him on the cross. Talk about offensive. Offensive. They stripped him nude because that's how you crucify somebody. You don't give them any dignity. You expose them before the public. Jesus hung, humiliated, and he did not deserve any of it. What would you do in that situation? Have you ever been the fall guy for something you didn't even do and you wanted to defend yourself? Here Jesus is in the same predicament, but what does he do? Does he defend himself? No, he hangs there on the cross and what does he do? Listen closer to what he does. He prays for his enemies. He prays for his enemies. The least you can do is shake your enemy's hand. If Jesus is willing to die for his enemies. The least you can do is acknowledge them and speak kindly to them. The least you can do is coexist with them. Jesus died for his enemies. Least you can do is pray for yours. Amen. Praise God. We we see here that David is going to kill Nabal. In verse twenty three, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from her donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. Abigail didn't have to do this. Abigail had servants, but Abigail humbled herself before David. How about that? Humility. We would do well to learn humility. Abigail knew this wasn't about her. It wasn't really about Nabal. It's really about David. It's really, really, really about God. God used Abigail as an instrument to keep David from sinning. Thanks be to our God who will do anything to save his people. He's already given his son. He will not spare anything else to keep you and hold you if you belong to him. Thanks be to God. He won't even keep cancer from you. What you mean? I don't don't want cancer. He won't even keep debt from you. He won't even keep bad news from you. He won't even keep loss from you. Because all things work towards good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose in Romans 8.28. All things, even if it looks bad, it's for my good. Even the sickness, even my layoffs, even my addictions, even my crash and broken life, is for my good because God has sent it my way to make me into the image of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. When Michelangelo was asked, "How did you carve David out of that limestone?" Have you ever seen the sculpture of David? He's he's standing there in all his glory, and he chipped away the marble. And they asked marble. They asked the Michelangelo, "How did you do that?" He said, "All I did is just chip away anything that didn't look like David, and it made this statue." That's what God is doing to you, oh believer. Anything that don 't look like Jesus, he will sand off of you, he burn off of you, he pull off, he prune off of you, that anger will go. That pride and that humility, he, that pride will come down and that humility will rise. He will do whatever He can and whatever He will to make you look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to speak like Jesus, to pray like Jesus, to sacrifice just like Jesus because we are Christians. Christians means little Christ. In the image of Jesus, we're to be like Him. You become whatever you serve and worship. If we are serving Jesus, we will be like Jesus, not just in name only, but in our actions. Our prayers and the way we conduct our lives will be in the image of Jesus. If you serve a political figure, you will be a political figure. If you serve a small God, you will be deaf, dumb, and blind, just like in false idol. You will be whatever you worship. She falls on her face and bows to the ground. Oh... In verse number 24, she fell at his feet and said, me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. In verse 24, she takes the blame. How many of us take the blame? Whenever we're caught, we pass the blame. Even Adam and Eve, whenever God came before Adam, he says, why did you sin? Adam pointed to Eve and Eve pointed to the snake. How quick are we to pass the blame? If you're a man in this house... In this church house, it's your responsibility to lead your family spiritually. It's it's not your wives. It's not your grandmas. It's not your mamas. It's your responsibility. If something goes wrong in your house, it may not be your fault, but it's your responsible. You are the man of the household. The high priest of the household. You are to lead your wife to not just the bedroom, but to the altar. Notice I didn't say girlfriend. I didn't say girlfriend. You're not supposed to lead your girlfriend to the bedroom either. Marry her, whoever needs to hear that. Serve God. She don't have no problem serving a godly man. Feminism and all that, yeah, I get it. Feminism came about because men are, uh, have, have wish bones where their backbone supposed to be. Right. But a woman has no trouble serving a godly man. Even Abigail here. She's serving a wretched man like Nabal, but she humbles herself before a godly man like David. Amen. She fell on her face. She says, she takes the guilt. Verse 25: Let not my Lord regard this fellow, worthless fellow Nabal. Even Nabal's wife says he's worthless. For his name. Is So is he, Nabal, in his name, and folly is with him, with him, within him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with you your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that is in, that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If my men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies shall be slung out of the hollow of your sling. What is she saying? She said, I know you'll be king. I see your life and how God has called you to that position. But don't do this great sin. God put Abigail there to keep David from sinning. Thanks be to God for all the obstacles that God puts in our lives to keep us from sinning. Whether it be this preacher, whether it be your friends, whether it be somebody that's even your enemy. No matter what, God will keep his. God will preserve his. And in verses 32 to 35, David acknowledged that God kept him from sinning. In Psalms 19 through 13... David write, keep back your servant from among the presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of such great transgressions. David again writes in Psalms 141 verse 9, Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me, from the snares of evildoers. And 1 Corinthians, Paul writes us in chapter 10, 13 through 14, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idols. It's good that God turns people away from their sins. Amen. When my heart wants to sin, my God keeps me from sinning. Thanks be to God. Amen. However, on every coin, there's a flip side. In seven minutes, we're going to fly fast here. In Romans one through 24-25. Paul writes to the church in Rome that God will turn you over to your sin. If you consistently sin and try to get past all the roadblocks that God puts in front of you, He will let you have your sins. That means He turns you over and says, you want that? Go for it. Romans one twenty four through twenty five. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And Romans one twenty eight through thirty two, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, so that they will do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but approve of those who practice them. Romans 2 4 says... Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and the patience of God, not knowing that his kindness leads to repentance? What does that last part mean? The fact that God loves you. He calls you to repentance. He sends people in your life to call you on your sins. To pinpoint your sins. To put their fingers on your heart and say, Here, here is sin. Repent of that sin. That's God's kindness towards you. If God is hardened toward you and angry toward you, and if He hated you, yes, did you know God hates people? It's in the book of Psalms 1711. He hates the workers of iniquity. If He allows you to keep on sinning, it's because He hates you. But those He loves... He sends righteous preachers, counselors and friends to call you on your sin who point to the scriptures and tell you to correct your life according to what the scripture says. And it leads to repentance. This is the kindness of God. If He causes your heart to be hardened, it's because He took His hands off of you. To help you understand, here's an illustration. The Puritans back in the 1700s, they had an illustration when the preachers would preach. They said the same sun in the sky, the same sun that melts the ice on the ground also hardens the clay. That means what I preach tonight, somebody is taking it to the heart. Because the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And you're examining your heart and your mind. And you're wondering, is this sin okay with God? I want him to get right with God. I want to repent of my sins and trust in Him. But your neighbor, who's right across the way, across the pew, or probably right beside you, are rolling their eyes, dozing off, ignoring to what the preacher says, and their hearts are growing harder. They're actually getting gospel hardened. So when they hear the gospel again, their heart gets Harder. And more impregnable. You can't even pierce their heart any longer. Because they're lost in their sins and they're damned forever. If your heart is tender tonight, because of harsh words. Hard words make soft hearts. If you hear hard words tonight and they're pulverizing your heart. And you're in sin. Your sin looks different than mine. I don't know what your sin looks like. Nobody sins the same. You might have a lot of pride. You might be a kleptomaniac. You might be a thief and a murderer. You might be angry and an unforgiving person. Repent. You might be holding a grudge that you've had for years and you just can't let go. Repent. Whoever you are. I don't even want to go any further. We're not going to speed through this. I am a repentant preacher. Everybody knows it. When you talk to me, I will examine you with the law and we'll talk about the law and we'll pull back the curtain and show how depraved we are and how much a sinner we are. And we need a savior and we ain't going to save ourselves. We can't tithe enough. We can't go to church enough. We can't even memorize the map in the back. I don't even know what Gilgal is. I don't know what all that's about. But I do know I'm a sinner. Many pulpits, modern pulpits today say that Jesus came to make good men better. We ain't good. We're just good at sinning. I mean, we're really good at sinning. If we're going to be good at something, that's what we're good at. Jesus is the hero that came to die for all the villains. We're the villains. He's the hero. Whoever you are, repent of your sins while you can. What do you mean while you can? That ain't, I ain't never heard that before preacher. What do you mean while you can? But next time you hear a gospel presentation and you still hold on to that sin and you have not repented, your heart grows a little colder. Oh, this ain't that serious. I'm going to live a long time. I I don't have to repent today. I told y'all, I've told it quite often, I love walking through graveyards. It ain't the dead I'm worried about, it's the living. We walk through graveyards and I want you to notice the dashes in between the years. Some of them are quick and some of them are not. You might see... 20, 30, 40 years in between each number and a dash. And sometimes you only see one date. Some people are born dead, stillborn children who are dead. There is no average number. This young people, old people, middle aged people, black people, white people, it don't really matter. You're not promised 10 minutes. 10 months, 10 years. You're not promised your next breath. We're talking about eternity here. And I'm not in a rush. When there's a surgery taking place at the hospital, the surgeon doesn't rush to cut arteries, to cut out whatever it is. He takes his time with a scalpel. And we, I know it's about to be 8 o'clock. But we're in no rush. Because we're talking about eternity. There's somebody here who needs to repent. What does that mean, preacher? Do we raise our hand, come to the altar, fall on the floor and wall around and cry? No. Repentance begins right there in the pew, right where you are. You cry out to God right where you are. God, will you have me? Don't leave me in my sins. Don't forget me. Don't throw me to the side. Wash me. Clean me. This preacher says, that you'll accept me just as I am I don't have to get sober right now I don't have to you just take me as I am I smell like smoke I got track marks on my arms I got problems and issues Jesus here I am will you have me you notice in pulpits they'll say you accept Jesus you ain't got to accept him he's already God Is if he accepts you Amen. Jesus here I am will you have me I'm a sinner save me redeem me wash me clean me Because I cannot save myself. We don't even get to finish this story tonight, the story of Nabal. But I want to go ahead and tell you this. Nabal later finds out that Abigail rolls into town to tell David, I humble myself before you. you. Will you accept this gift? Will you accept this gift so you will not bring wrath down on Nabal? And David acknowledges that God is in control. And he thanks God. He writes many psalms about God protecting him and keeping him. However, when Abigail gets back into town, she sees Nabal, he's skunk drunk. Not just drunk, not tipsy, skunk drunk. You know that drunk where you hold on to the ground to keep from falling off? He's drunk, so she waits till the next morning. And tells Nabal, hey, you know, by the way, I went out of town last night because uh, David was around the way and he was coming to kill you. And at that moment, the Bible says that his heart was struck. It scared him. Basically, he had a heart attack. And for 10 days, he lays in his bed. And then the Bible says that God strikes Nabal and kills him. He dies in his own bed. So God avenged David. I want you to understand that David worked for God and served God. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Amen. That means David does not have to fight his own battles. He turns himself over to God. If he gets offended or insulted by someone, he says, God, you handle that. Amen. First and Second Peter explains it explicitly. It says that Jesus did not return revile for revile. Whenever he was insulted, he didn't insult back. He turned it over to God who does things justly. If you've been slighted and if you've been wrong, give it to God. Amen. Give it to God. Amen. If you serve him and he's yours, give it to God. Let him fight your battles. I'm going to use this last analogy and we'll be done. I need everybody to wake up and hear this. This is a great, it's one of my favorites. There was a little boy, he carved a ship with his own two hands. This little sailboat, he loved the sailboat. He designed it, he made the mast, he even put the rudder on the back, carved his name on the bottom, painted it up, and even put the sails on it. He wondered if it would float and how much it would float, if it was seaworthy. So he goes down to the local park and he lays it down in a brook and it floats. He's excited as he runs along the bank as the ship is going and taking the, the current. The little boy is so excited he's beside himself. But the current catches the boat and the boat is sucked down into a storm drain. The little boy searches and he cannot find the boat anywhere Fast forward a few weeks, the little boy's downtown walking with his family and he looks on a shop window and there in the window is his boat. He knows it's his boat. He knows the details. In fact, he goes into the shopkeeper and he says, Excuse me, sir, that boat is my boat. He explains the dilemma. He explains how he took it down to the park and how it got away from him. The shopkeeper sympathizes with the little boy. He says, I understand, son. I understand your situation. But that's the price of the boat. The price of the boat is right there in the window. You see it. The little boy leaves, but he's not disheartened. He goes home and he earns the money by working in neighbor's yards, trimming the hedges, cleaning gutters, mowing the grass, doing all he can. And he finally comes back with wads of money and quarters and coins. He lays them on the counter and pushes it across the counter to the shopkeeper. The shopkeeper unfolds every bill, counts every penny, every dime, turns and hands the boat to the little boy. The little boy holds the boat, turns it over, sees his initials. He holds the boat in his arm and he says, I made you, I lost you, I found you, and I bought you back. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? He made you. Amen. You got away from him. He found you. Amen. And he bought you back. He said one last thing as he holds the boat. You're double mine. Amen. (laughs) You're double his. I felt that. Y'all feel that. Amen. 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 That ain't the Holy Ghost. That's just feeling good. That he doubles. You're double his. You're his. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you tonight as we've gathered here in the shadow of the steeple here at the river that we've.